Well, if you have ever built a house or had a house built, uh, you will know, and even if you haven't, you would agree with this, that order of operations matters, okay? Um, if your drywall guys come and they patch up all the walls before your electrical and plumbing guys put the things in the walls, you're going to have a big problem, right? Uh, or if your roofer comes to put on the roof before the framing guys have built the roof, uh, then you're also going to have a big problem, right? A good general contractor, his job is to, to organize and schedule the subcontractors so that everything gets done in the right order because if things don't happen in the right order, then the house is not going to be built up. But if it is organized and scheduled well such that everyone does their jobs, not only does their jobs well, but does their their jobs in the proper context and order, then actually the house is going to get built up, right? Well, we know that's true of buildings and houses, but we also know that that's true even more importantly in the context of the church. If we are to use our spiritual gifts well, but also in the right context and in the right order, then the house of the church can actually be built up. So we were back uh, a couple weeks ago in chapter 14. Remember, we saw this theme for really the whole chapter. Using spiritual speaking gifts in love means using them for edifying the church. Remember in chapter 12, we talked about how we are one body. We're all unified in spirit, but God has designed it and delights in the fact that we're all different and have diverse giftedness that he's given us so that we can serve each other well. Okay, so we saw that in chapter 12. In chapter 13, we talked about how the essential element to doing that well is that we love one another, right? Love is patient and kind, and we walked through all of those aspects about how we are to express our spiritual giftedness to each other. It's by loving one another. And then we started in chapter 14 last time, a couple weeks ago, and started talking about how using our spiritual gifts, and especially in chapter 14, we're talking about the speaking gifts in the context of the corporate worship service. Using those in a way that loves one another means that we use them for building up the church. Okay, that means that we are after trying to get one another to be more and more like Jesus. All right, and remember our breakdown from last time. We talked about the edifying purpose of speaking gifts. You know, why does he keep saying that prophecy is better than tongues? Well, it's because in that context, prophecy was the more consistent and easier gift to edify the whole church because tongues had to be interpreted, right? And then he talked about the practice of speaking gifts. And edifying message is understandable to the hearer. Remember, he talks about how you're not allowed to use the speaking gift of tongues in the church if it's not interpreted and translated into something that everyone can understand and that can be witnessed to be true, right? And then he talked about in 20 to 25 about how you need to use your gifts in their appropriate context, right? And so he talked about how the speaking of tongues in actually in the New Testament era, the apostolic era, wasn't meant primarily to be used for believers in the context of the church. It could be, but primarily it was a sign to unbelievers, right? Uh, in negatively, a sign of judgment to the unbelieving Jews that they were no longer the, the witness nation that they should have been, and then a positive sign to the unbelieving Gentiles that this is the God you need to be worshiping, and this is the gospel, and we can explain it to you in a language that you understand, right? So then we come now to the last section of the chapter, and that is if we're going to have an edifying message, if we're going to use our speaking gifts well, that means that they are going to be orderly in their presentation. An edifying message is orderly in its presentation, and that's what we're going to look at today. And so let's say our theme for today this way, the orderliness of corporate worship is essential to the edification of the church. See, how we handle the worship services in the corporate in the church, in the local church, the corporate worship of the local church matters. It matters how we do that, and the orderliness of that is essential to the church being built up. All right? So 1 Corinthians 14, verses 26 to 40, and let's read and uh, read through this section, and then we'll walk through it, okay? 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in the tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. 
The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized." Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. So, in our section here, the orderliness of corporate worship is essential to the edification of the church. Here in our section, Paul's going to give four instructions concerning the rules of order in corporate worship. And the first thing he's going to comment on in verse 26 is the heart behind the rules of order, the heart behind it. So verse 26, he says, what then, brethren? And the idea is, what do we do now? Uh, we've talked about spiritual gifts and how we're all different, but we're all together in one body. And, and we've talked about how we should love one another. And now we've talked about how we should use the gifts that are more for the edification of the, of the body instead of our own showmanship. Okay, what do we do with this? What's the application? And in one sense, this whole section, 26 to 40, is the application of the last three chapters of spiritual gifts. What are we going to do about it? How are we going to make this happen? What then, brethren? What's the situation? And then he comes up with a scenario. Well, whenever you gather, whenever you assemble, so, so we know we're talking about the corporate worship service. Each week when we gather together to worship God together, it says when you assemble, or literally when you come together, and it's the same word we've seen in chapter 14. We saw it back in chapter 11 when we talked about meeting together to come together for celebrating the Lord's Supper and so on. Okay, so this is corporate worship. When you come together, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue. Everyone comes. Everyone has their own contribution, their own idea of how we should handle the corporate worship service. Are these bad things? No, they're good things. Look at them. Each one has a psalm. Ephesians 5.19 tells us where to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. Someone has a teaching or an instruction We've already seen that in chapter 14. Paul says when he comes to you, he's going to come and it's going to profit you. Why? Because he comes with teaching. He's going to instruct you. We see it in Titus chapter 1 verse 9, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. Someone coming and sharing the word of God with us, that's a good thing, right? Someone has a revelation. Remember we talked about this last time. This is someone who had the gift that God would give them new revelation, new truth that hadn't been inscripturated yet for the, the purposes of the church. Now, once the canon was complete and the memoirs of the apostles were all put together and, and inscripturated, we didn't need the gifts of prophecy and revelation anymore. But at this time in Corinth, they did. Someone brings a revelation. Someone has a tongue or has an interpretation of a tongue. And so someone would speak in a different language and someone would interpret that language and it would be something that the Lord had for them. So he has all these things, and the question is, are, are these bad things? Is it bad that they're gathering together? No, it's a good thing that they're gathering together. Is it bad that they're gathering together and all wanting to participate and bring these ideas? No, that's a good thing too. What's the problem? Well, you know, what your mom told you, too much of a good thing, right? You can't eat only candy all the time. You need to have an idea of what a balanced diet is. And so how do we know what are the priorities here? How do we know how to order the structure of the church so that it's good for all of us so that it's what? edifying for the church. And so that's the heart. Look at verse 26. Let all things be done for edification. An imperative, a command to the church. Let all things be done for edification, for building up. And remember, we talked in chapter 12, the manifestation of the Spirit is for what? For my own personal sanctification? No, for the common good, for the good of the church, right? We saw it in Ephesians 4.12, the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. No matter what we decide to do in the context of corporate worship in the church, this is what we're about. We are doing whatever is best for the building up of the church so that all of us look more and more like Jesus Christ. That's the point. That's the heart behind the rules. The rules aren't to be, you know, just punitive and, and just strict for no reason. The rules are put in place so that whatever we decide to do, we can do it in a way that is honoring to the Lord. So, a couple applications quickly, just from verse 26. Notice that it's important that we gather and that we gather with the intention to participate together. I think the American church could probably learn a small thing or two from the Corinthian church in that they all wanted to be there and they all wanted to participate. 
That's a good thing for us. We should be consistent in gathering in the local church to worship God together, and we should be gathering with an, a heart and an intention and, frankly, you know, enough sleep and brain power behind us to actually participate in worship. We don't roll in five minutes late and leave five minutes early so we don't have to do anything, and we're just here for, for the donuts, right? It's important that we come, that we gather together, that we participate in worship. But notice what he says, all things done for edification. So when you come to church, and here's the question, when you come to church, are you coming to get things or to give things? Okay, that's the idea. What is your heart about? Are you hoping that by you being at church, you will be encouraged, you will be prayed for, you will get to take some food home, whatever? Or are you hoping that when you come to church, you are able to encourage, you are able to pray for others, you are hoping that the gathering of the local church would actually be a benefit to all of us and that all of us would be more like Jesus. All things done for edification. That's the idea. That's the heart behind the rules of order. Okay? Now, he's going to get to the explanation of the rules of order. Okay? And he's going to address three groups of people here. And so the first group we're going to talk about is the role of the tongue speakers. The role of the tongue speakers. That is, those who have the spiritual giftedness where they could speak in another language that they hadn't learned before are those people to use their speaking gift of tongues in the context of the church. Okay, well, verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So notice first, its use, its use is not necessary. You see that? He starts with what? If. <laughs> if someone wants to speak in a tongue in the context of the church. But there's conditions, right? If someone is going to speak, there has to be an interpreter, verse 28, and if there's not an interpreter, they can't use their speaking gift, which means, by definition, that using the speaking of tongues in corporate worship is not necessary for a corporate worship service to go well and to honor the Lord. That gift does not have to be used, okay? So, Notice that it's, it's not necessary, but because it's not necessary, the use of it is limited. If you're going to use this speaking gift in the context of the church, it needs to be limited. Look at verse 27. It should be by two, or it says at the most three. Literally, it says at the greatest. The greatest number you should ever have in a corporate worship service of people speaking in tongues is three people, but preferably less, preferably two or even one or zero, okay? should be by two or at the most three. Three. Why? Because that gift, that speaking gift, one, required an extra condition of being interpreted, and two, is not necessary for the corporate worship. Okay? Notice the timing. Each in turn, he says, if you're going to do it, if someone's going to speak in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn. You remember uh, back in verse 23, he said, the problem with how you're doing it now is you're all speaking in tongues at the same time over top of each other, and it's just creating this, this cacophony of chaos. People are coming in, and they're thinking you're, you know, at the best drunk and at the worst just crazy, right? He says, that's not good. That's not helpful for the body. That's not edifying for the body for you to use your gifts over top of each other. Rather, if you're going to use your gift in this way, you need to use it each in turn. And literally, he says, use each in part. Each one has a part. So you get a little part, you get a little part, you get a little part. Okay? And then the condition. Notice that using tongues, using the spiritual gift of tongues in the corporate worship service is conditional on the availability of an interpreter. He says one must interpret. That's a, that's a command. He has a lot of these in the section, a lot of commands. Um, so here's an English lesson. First person is me. Second person, I'm talking to you. Third person is I'm talking to that guy or about that guy, okay? So these, we can't really do this in English. In English, we do second person commands. You should do this. You must do this. You do this, okay? In Greek, there's third person commands. So I am commanding that guy by speaking to you, okay? So when he's talking to the church, he's commanding that person. So again, it doesn't translate well to English, but the idea is there must be an interpreter. That's a command. He has to interpret, okay? Why? Because if there's not an interpreter, if he doesn't interpret the, the tongues, the, the languages, he must keep silent and let him speak to himself and to God. He must not use his gift. He must keep silent. He cannot use his speaking gift in worship service if someone can't interpret it, okay? Which also leads to an interesting comment, by the way, that just because you have a speaking gift or have any spiritual giftedness at all, 
using it in any context, any time, does not necessarily mean that it's honoring to the Lord just because the Spirit gave it to you. You have to use it in the right way, in the right context, right? So he must keep silent. And you're like, oh, well, maybe it's not like he can't talk at all, but he should just talk quieter. You know, maybe he should go and talk to a little group on the corner. It's like, no, it says he must keep silent. It's the same word in Luke chapter 18 when Jesus was walking by and the blind man on the side of the road kept calling out, son of David, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. And the people around Jesus kept telling him to be quiet, right? That's the idea. If you are going to use tongue speaking in corporate worship, and there's not someone to interpret, sit down and shut up. That's the rule, okay? You cannot talk. And notice what he says, let him speak to himself and to God. And again, we talked about this last time. A lot of people try and see this private prayer language where I can just talk to myself, but that's not the point of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are never for you. They're for everyone else, which means here he's not saying, oh, just take your tongues and go home and do it there. No, he's saying... The only person in the room that's understanding you is you and God. Therefore, keep it to yourself. That's the idea. So, we saw the use, that it's not necessary, but if they were going to use it, it had to be limited. It had to be each in turn and orderly in the timing. It was subject to the availability of an interpreter. And then the purpose, we don't see as clearly in this passage, it's implied. But look back at verse 5, chapter 14, verse 5. What's the point of using tongues in the context of the worship service? I wish that you all spoke in tongues. Why? Because it's a good spiritual gift. But even more that you would prophesy. Greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. What would ever be the point of using tongues in the corporate worship service? It's so that the people would understand the message and that they would be built up to be more like Christ because of that message. That's the point. So what's the purpose of using tongues in the context of the church? It would be for understandable edification. So that was the rules of order that they had to abide by for the tongue speakers. The second group he talks to is the prophets, okay? The prophets. So what about the prophets? How should they use their speaking gifts? Well, their use, look at verse 29, is limited also, but it's necessary. Look at 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. Again, it's a command. The prophets must speak. Why? Why is there a certain spiritual gift that has to be used in every corporate worship service? Because the primary component of every corporate worship service in the New Testament church is the proclamation of the truth of God. Before the canon was complete, you had prophets who were bringing the truth of God directly from God's spirit to the people. Now that the canon is complete, that has been passed on to the ministry of teaching. And so we see that throughout the epistles, the one who is to teach and preach the word of God, right? And so here, the, the tongue speakers, it was an if. The prophets, it's a must. The prophets must speak. But how many? Is it, is it just as many as want to? No, it's limited as well. Two or three prophets must speak. And then look at the timing, verses 30 and 31. It says the timing is one by one. Again, it has to be orderly. There has to be a succession for them. So verse 30, if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. You can all prophesy one by one. The idea is that if someone was standing up and they were, they were prophesying, they were bringing a word from the Lord to the people, and someone else sitting there calmly in control said, the Lord has given me something to share with the people, then at the most this would happen twice. Okay, in a service. There goes two, three at the max, right? That person, the person speaking, would, would conclude their, their message to the people. The next man would stand up and he would bring the word that the Spirit gave to him to the people. But at the most, three people do that. But notice that it's one by one, which means it requires humility on the guy who's standing up here to conclude his message for the sake of the next guy. It requires the next guy to be humble enough to wait until it's his turn and not to speak over top of the first guy, right? You can all prophesy one by one. But notice, if the revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must what? Keep silent. He must be quiet. Why? Because it's not his turn. You notice that actually this is talking about how to not use your spiritual speaking gifts, right? When do you need to not use your gift so that you are building up the church? It's for the tongue speakers, if no one can interpret what you're saying, for the prophets, when the next person's turn is to speak, you need to be quiet. Notice the condition for the prophets. The condition for their using their gifts was that their gift was subject to evaluation of the discerners. Notice in, in verse 29, two or three prophets must speak 
and the others must pass judgment. Now, the question is, uh, well, first, the past judgment, that's the idea of discernment or making a distinction between things, or sometimes it's even translated in a negative sense of being critical or even doubting what's being said, okay? So the idea is someone needs to sit there and listen to what you're saying and to evaluate if it's right or not, okay? So Job chapter 12, verse 11 says, doesn't the ear test words as the palate tastes food? You know, when you put something in your mouth to eat it, your tongue tells you if that's a good thing or a bad thing to eat, right? By how it tastes, your ear should taste words and test them and decide if they are good or not. And so the question is here in verse 29, who is the others passing judgment? Or who are the others? I guess is better grammar. Who are the others passing judgment? Well, there's, there's lots of opinions out there. One person says that, you know, some commentators think it's the other prophets. It says two or three prophets and the others. So the other prophets in the room would be the ones to pass judgment. That is possible. Uh, some would say, what about just the wise men in the church, the ones who, are, who are, understand the word? So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, remember in chapter 6 we talked about how you can't have lawsuits among the people in the church, but you should be able to decide amongst yourselves the wise men in the church. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 5, the wise men in the church should be able to decide between the brethren. So maybe it's them. If we jump over to 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 to 22, it makes it sound like the whole church is involved in discerning and, and evaluating what is being spoken. It says, examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, and abstain from every form of evil. We see that also, you remember, in Acts 17, 11 with the, the noble Bereans, right? They were the ones who listened to the teaching of the apostles, but they examined the scriptures to see whether those things were so. So in one sense, everyone in the church is responsible to, to evaluate what is said. But in this context, specifically verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 29, I think Paul is using a very specific word for a specific reason. That is, he says, let the others pass judgment. And the word that he uses there is used back in chapter 12, when he, chapter 12, verse 10, when he says, the Spirit gives gifts to some the affecting of miracles, to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits. Those two gifts go together, prophecy and the distinguishing of spirits. That discernment, distinguishing gift, remember we talked about, these are the people that were the human lie detectors. They were to sit there and by the Holy Spirit's power be able to say, that is someone speaking the word of the Lord, or that person is speaking something that's false. Okay? Before the canon was complete and we could compare to the, the finalized, uh, inscripturated word, they, these people had the spiritual gift to say, that is from the Lord, or that is not from the Lord. Okay? And so here, when he says, let the others pass judgment, I think that's the idea, that when the prophets would stand up to speak, there were people in the church who it was their giftedness, their job was to evaluate and to say, yes, this is true, this is from the Lord. So there's condition on them, on the prophets, but notice the purpose in verses 31 to 33. It's for instruction and for exhortation of the church. Verse 31, you can all prophesy one by one so that... All may learn and all may be exhorted. All may learn and all may be exhorted. The idea is that when the prophets are standing up, it's good for us. We are learning. We are receiving instruction by their teaching us. And we're being exhorted. We're, we're being encouraged and helped along to obey these things. That's the idea. But notice something else that he says here in verses 32 and 33. He says that this is how you should use your gift properly, but... If you use your gift properly, it also does something else. It also reflects the character of God himself. Look at verse 32. The spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, some people, like I said, they just get bent out of shape with this verse 32. The spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. It's really simple. The idea is, like we talked about last time and the time before, Galatians 5 says the fruit of the spirit is self-control. He's talking about how you need to take turns. When one prophet is ready to speak, the, other, the prophet before him needs to have the humility and the self-control to stop speaking and to sit down and be quiet. And I, I read a commentary this week, a story of a, a man who used to preach at conferences, and he would always preach behind this one man who would preach, and he would always go over his time, always 10, 20, 30 minutes over his time. And this preacher would say, well, you, you went long again, and, and the first preacher would say, oh, once the Holy Spirit takes over, you can't, can't look at the clock anymore, right? 
And the second preacher would quote verse 32, the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets, right? You should have self-control enough to be done when it's your turn to be done, right? And so the idea here is when it's your turn to be done, you have to have self-control. Your spiritual gift is not in control of you. You are in control of it, okay? So verse 33, if you do this, if you do it correctly and well, and you have self-control in how you use your gifts, Verse 33, you reflect God. Why? Because God is not a God of confusion. Warren Wearsby in his commentary says, When the Holy Spirit is in charge, the ministers will have self-control, for it is one of the fruit of the Spirit. He says, Our own self-control is one of the evidences that the Spirit is indeed at work in our meeting. One of the ministries of the Spirit is to bring order out of chaos. Confusion comes from Satan, not from God. When the Spirit is leading, the participants are able to minister one by one so that the total impact of God's message may be received by the church. So, what's the idea? (laughs) A church that is out of control is not a Spirit-led church, even though they take that name, okay? A church that is in control, that is careful and self-controlled and using their giftedness for the good of each other, that is a spirit-led church. Why? Because that reflects God. God is not a God of confusion or disturbances or disorder. It's even translated sometimes as uprisings or riots. You all remember a few years ago when there was just chaos in our country and people were rioting in the streets. God is not a God of chaos. God is a God of peace, a God of harmony, a God of order. One commentary says, if the prophets had no control over their spirit, any prospect of an orderly assembly would just vanish. But the expositor's commentary says, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Orderly worship reflects the character of God. That's what it means. A self-controlled church is a church that reflects the character of God. And then notice at the end of verse 33, he says, as in all the churches of the saints, (laughs) uh, I think it's helpful for Paul to remind them, these are not just rules for the Corinthian church because you're really bad at these things, and so I'm putting rules for you. That was true. They were really bad at this, and so he was putting rules for them. But also it applies to all the churches. This is something that is true for all churches of the church age, that they are to abide by these rules in the context that apply to them. 1 Corinthians 4, he said this again, uh, verse 17, just as I teach everywhere in every church, we saw it in chapter 7, chapter 11. So let's stop just for a second and say, what does this look like? Because as you were reading, you were like me and saying, you know, this, this feels different than the church services we have nowadays, right? This, this Corinthian church service feels very communal and, you know, it's like a church service potluck. Everybody brings something to share, right? It's like, is that good or bad or should we do it like that? Or what about, you know, how we just have Tom preach and Well, I would say, I think, uh, one thing to observe here is by Paul's tone here in 1 Corinthians 14 and by the examples we have in Acts and the rest of the epistles, um, I believe that this is the bare minimum of orderliness in the church, okay? Two or at the most three is what is allowable, what is is reasonable. But actually, Justin Martyr wrote... uh, See, 100. So, 100 years after Corinthians was written, 1 Corinthians was written, and his description of what a church service looked like looks remarkably like what we do today, actually. And so, I think the idea of even using this giftedness in the church, as soon as those gifts started to cease at the end of the first century, you're seeing that the church services took a more structured and formal approach. And I think that's reasonable and good. But notice the principles that we see here in these, these first couple sections. What is the principle that the attitude that has to be in all of these people? It has to be an attitude of humility, right? An attitude that says, hey, I want to serve the church as long as it's good for the church, but if it's good for someone else to serve, I want them to do it, right? That's an attitude of humility. So notice how they limited the use of their their spiritual speaking gifts. If you're, you know, the question is for you and me, are, are we looking for a chance to be noticed, to always get to use our gift, or are we looking for a chance to serve no matter what that looks like? Are we, are we letting others and encouraging others to serve as they've been gifted? Notice how they shared, right? They passed from one to the other, each one by one. So in a context where you're sitting around a table here in Sunday school, or maybe you go to a home fellowship group and there's a discussion happening, are you the kind of person that has to be in charge, has to dominate the conversation and monopolize that and always get your word in? Or are you the kind of person that likes to defer to others and, and to serve them and listen to them and ask good questions? 
notice that all these things had to be evaluated, right? The, tr- the tongues had to, be, had to be interpreted and witnessed, but also the prophets had to be evaluated and passed judgment on. So when you come and you're in a preaching context more like this, or when you sit under Pastor Tom, are you comparing everything that the teacher says to the scripture and making sure that these things are so? Just so you know, I've told you this before, uh, I don't care what Tom thinks. I really don't. You can tell him I said that. I don't care what Tom thinks. I care what the Bible thinks. I do care what Tom thinks because he's my friend. But, but I care what the Bible thinks, right? And so when Tom stands up and says something, I don't listen to it because Tom said it. I listen to it because it's what God said, right? And so are you the same way? Are you comparing what is taught here to the Scripture? On the other hand, <laughs> are you taking that evaluation idea a little too far and saying, oh, I'm going to be the judge here, and I will decide if you're right or not, and I'm going to sit here and pass judgment on you, and I'm just coming here really to be critical of everything that you say? Well, that's not humble at all, is it? You'll notice there's some differences here because in our context, in our church, we don't have tongue speakers and prophets, right? No one's getting a new revelation while Tom is up there preaching. And again, if you want to talk more about that, we can talk more about that, why we don't believe those miraculous gifts are in place. But the third demographic of people he's going to address, we do have in this church, actually, um, because it's women. And I will say, for your encouragement, that... Our elders talk a lot in our elder meetings about how thankful they are for the women in our church because we know two things to be sure. Number one is that the Bible holds the responsibility of leadership in the local church to a plurality of qualified men. That's the truth. That's how it is. That's how God has designed it. The second thing that the elders know very clearly is that this church would fall apart in a hot minute if all of you ladies disappeared really quick. Okay, we know that God has designed the church for a reason the way it is, which means that all of us are to use our giftedness in the way that he's designed for us to use it. Okay, so let's look. What does Paul say about the role of women using their speaking gifts in the context of the worship service? Well, verse 34, 35, he tells us that women are not to exercise their speaking gift in the context of the worship service. Look at verse 34. The women are to keep silent in the churches. It's the same word as was said to the prophets and to the tongue speakers in, in some cases. They are not permitted to speak. Verse 35, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. The women are to keep silent. They are not permitted to speak. Notice, first observation, is there's no condition on this. Remember, when was the tongue speaker not supposed to use his gift? If there was no interpreter. When was the prophet not supposed to use his gift? When it was someone else's turn to use their gift. On the women, there is not an if. Okay, It's not that the women are supposed to use their speaking gifts in church unless it's the women are not to use their speaking gifts in the context of the corporate worship service. Okay, now we're going to bring all this together and and I'll try and answer some of those questions that are popping up into your mind, okay? Give me a second. So the timing, when are they supposed to use their gifts or when are they allowed to talk and ask questions and discuss these things? Well, the answer is only in private. Notice in verse 35, if they want to learn anything, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. They are supposed to speak, they are supposed to discuss these things, but in certain contexts, not in the corporate worship gathering, but rather at their own home or in other private contexts. It is improper for a woman to speak in church. So what's the condition put on women using their speaking gifts? Well, in verse 34 and 35, we see subject to the authority of the church and their husbands. Now, look at verse 34. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. So the question is, they are to subject themselves to whom or what? That's the question. There is no object in that sentence, right? So, many commentators look and say, well, clearly the object comes in verse 35. They are to uh, subject themselves to their own husbands at home. Is that true? Very true. We see that in lots of other places in the scripture. Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3, Titus chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 3. We even saw it back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we saw that authority structure. Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman. God is the head of Christ. Women, in the context of the home, the wives are to be subject, humble helpers to their husbands who are to be their loving leaders. But I think it's interesting in verse 34 that he doesn't specify an object. And I think there's a reason for that. Because in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter uses the same term and he applies it to young men in the church. And he says, you young men are to be subject to the elders of the church. 
You are to be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility. I believe what he's saying here is that the women are to not use their speaking gifts, but are to subject themselves to the teaching that is happening, and therefore to the leadership of the church. And so, the clearer passage on this is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. It says this, A woman must, com- must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. You see, the idea here is that women are not to use their speaking gifts when the whole church is gathered and assembled such that they are using their speaking gifts to teach or to exercise authority over the men in the church. That's not proper. He says, just as the law also says. What is that referring to? Well, I think he's referring all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when the curse comes in place and God says to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth in pain. You will bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you for as long as we're in the sin cursed world, there will be authority conflicts between men and women. That's just how it is. We need to, to fight that and to fight to fulfill our biblical roles. And then of course we see them being subject to their own husbands in verse 35, let them ask their own husbands at home. But the question is, what about all the people that don't have husbands, okay? And some commentaries, I am not joking with you, some commentaries say that if you're married, you have to listen to your husband. If you're not married, you can do whatever you want. It's like, that feels backwards, right? I don't, I don't feel like that's what he said, considering three times in two verses he said that women must not speak in church. So what is the idea? The context of the local church, in the context of the corporate worship, women are not to use their exer- to exercise their speaking gifts in such a way that they uh, uh, teach or exercise authority over men. That's what he's teaching here. And again, we can talk long and hard. Uh, you know that I don't believe that that means that there's a difference in spiritual value between men and women or anything like that. I believe that God has designed roles for the world and roles for the home and roles for the church and that that's a good thing that he's designed for us. Okay? Now, well, it would be easy if you're a lady who has a good teaching gift, a good speaking gift, and Paul says you can't use that in the context of the corporate worship, you would say, fine, I'm not coming anymore. I don't want to be there. Clearly, this is a boys' club, so y'all just go and have fun. I'm staying at home. But you'll notice in verse 35 that the purpose of women being involved in the corporate worship is that they are to learn. They are to receive instruction. And so it says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak in church. They should be there subjecting themselves to the teaching, and they should be learning even more when they get home, right? Why? Why do women need to learn and understand the the scripture and the teaching and the theology? Why? Because you're a Christian. You need to know this stuff. You need to honor the Lord by studying the word of God well, by sitting under good teaching, and by studying the word of God yourself. But also because women do have speaking gifts and they need to exercise them in the right context. Titus 2 says the women are to learn so that they can be, uh, older women are to be reverent in their behavior, teaching what is good, encouraging the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. Women do have speaking gifts. They do need to be used in the context of the church. They need to be used in the appropriate context in the church. That's the idea. So question is for for you ladies, are you eager to, you know, 1 Peter 3 talks about a gentle and quiet spirit. Are you eager to be a humble person, to, to sit and listen, to understand what the Lord has taught through the word and not be one who always wants to dominate conversation and take over the room? Do you demonstrate a part of submission to the authorities in your life if you have a husband or, or your father or even just the leadership in the church? Are you eager to learn the truth of God's word when you're taught and to meditate on it and study it even when you're at home? Are you eager to use your speaking gifts in the appropriate context to build up and edify the body of Christ? Guys, not letting you off the hook, you'll notice in verse 35 that it says, if the women have questions, they are to ask who? You. And you better know the answer. That's the idea, right? Matthew Henry, he says, note, as it is the woman's duty to learn in subjection, it is the man's duty to keep up his superiority by being able to instruct. If it be her duty to ask her husband at home, it's his concern and duty to endeavor at least to be able to answer her questions. If it be a shame for her to speak in the church where she should be silent, it is a shame for him to be silent when he should speak and not be able to even answer when she asks. Guys, this is a big deal. 
And uh, Warren Wearsby said, sad to say, in too many Christian homes today, the wife has to answer the questions for the husband because she's better taught. That is not okay. It is a shame on all of us if our wives have to answer for us or have to ask somebody else because we don't know the answer. We better know the scriptures backwards and forwards and know theology so that when we come home and they say, hey, Pastor Tom said this, what what do you think he meant by that? You better have an answer. And maybe the answer is, I'm going to go find out. You better find out quick. The answer might be you walking up to Pastor Tom who stands in the lobby after his sermons and saying, I'm going to get some questions on the ride home, so... Can you clarify for me? And that's fine. And he's not going to be ashamed of you because he knows you're not omniscient, okay? But the question is, do you care to know the scripture to where you can actually be the spiritual leader in your home? To teach your wife and children so that when they have questions, you actually have a biblical answer. So, the explanation of the rules of order, this is how it should look in the context of the local church. Let's move on. Number three The third instruction, the danger of rejecting the rules of order. Now, there was a lot that Paul just said there. He put a lot of rules in place, a lot of commands. And it'd be easy for the Corinthians to say, you know what? We appreciate what you've done for us, Paul. We're, we're, you know, uh, your position is not going to be in place anymore. We're not going to have to listen to you. We're just going to do whatever we want to do. And Paul says, that's a dangerous place to be. Look at verse 36. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come to you only? What happens when the person says, you know what, I, I know that you said that's in the text, but, but I don't believe that. I don't, I don't believe there should be rules in place. I don't believe that women can't teach in the church. What happens? Well, <laughs> Paul says, oh, oh, sorry, sorry, I, I misunderstood. You're the source of truth, huh? The word of God came from you? Is that, is that what happened? Oh, oh, no, maybe, maybe it didn't come from you, but when it got to you, it really arrived, right? You really perfected the teaching. It came to you only. You see what happens when you reject the clear teaching of Scripture? You know what your standard is? It's you. It's you. Step one in this pride, this battle against pride, is if you're going to reject the clear teaching of Scripture, you are your own standard. You have decided what you think is better than what God thinks, and so you're going to decide. Step two, what happens if you go down that road? What happens if you say, you know what, I am right? I know the word sounds like it says this, but I'm right. I'm going to decide what it says. Step two, you're going to reject God's word. You're just going to say that's not what it says, and I don't want to listen to it. Verse 37, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or he's spiritual, if anyone thinks he is wise, he's the one who this this truth is coming through, He's, he's the barometer. Well, Paul's talked like this earlier in the book, right? 1 Corinthians 3. If any one of you thinks that he is wise, or chapter 8, verse 2, if anyone thinks that he knows anything, (laughs) it's usually a bad thing coming after that, right? If you think you're as smart as you think you are, answer me this. If you're really so wise, you would recognize, verse 37, that the things I write to you are the Lord's commandment. This isn't Paul's opinion. This isn't culturally bound. These are the things that God has given us through the scripture for the good of his church. Back to our illustration at the beginning. The Lord is the owner of the house. He is the one who gets to decide what order things go in. He is the designer. And so, one commentary says, those who are filled with the Holy Spirit will demonstrate compliance with the Lord's command. They are the true spiritual people who obey the leading of the Spirit. You see, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you will want to obey the Scripture. You know why? The Holy Spirit wrote the Scripture. But what if you don't? Maybe you have friends or family members who who they reject the teaching of the Scripture. They walk away. They become their own standard. He says, but if anyone does not recognize this. Matthew Henry says, note, those must be reproved and humbled whose spiritual pride throw Christian churches into confusion, though such men will hardly bear even the rebukes of an apostle. You can can ask our elders and pastors the issues they've had to deal with over the years. When, When proud young people get to this point where they say, I'm my own standard, I'm deciding what is right, I'm rejecting the clear teaching of the scripture, that is a dangerous place to be And it's a hard place to come back from. 
when you say, I don't care what the Bible says, I don't want it. Just so you know, I know the whole elder board thinks one thing. I think something different, and I'm obviously right, and they're all wrong. I know this whole church holds to something, but obviously I'm right, and they're all wrong. That's a scary place to be. Why? Because look at step three. If anyone doesn't recognize this, that this is God's authority, he's not recognized. What does he mean by that? I think he means two things. The simple thing is, obviously, that guy should not be asked to teach in the church, right? He's not to be recognized and say, oh, stand up and give us your prophecy. Why? Because he won't even obey the rules. But more importantly, and I think, I think really what he's getting at is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verse 16. The one who listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. You see, when you reject the clear teaching of the word of God, you are not rejecting a pastor or a preacher. You are rejecting God and what he has said for you. 1 John 4, 6, John says, We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You know one of the clearest signs of a true Christian, someone who's really going to be in heaven, is that they care what the Bible says and they want to obey it. Why? Because that's the sign of the Spirit in you. <laughs> the Bible Knowledge Commentary says, Paul expected some opposition, but warned that those who opposed him did so at their own peril. Anyone who ignores the Lord's commands would find himself ignored on the last day because his actions would show that he never knew the Lord. But even if you're in Christ, we need to fight so hard against the insidious sin of pride in our own hearts. We always think we're right. Otherwise, we wouldn't think that way, right? We always think we're right, but we have to fight against the sin of pride, reminding ourselves that what we think is not the standard for life. What God says is the standard for life, not our own convictions, our own opinions. We need to remember that rejecting the word of God, the authority of God's word in our life, that is a terrifying hint at your true spiritual condition. Because either one, God is going to have to discipline you as his child to bring you out of that, or two, he won't because you're not his child to begin with. A scary place to be. The danger of rejecting the rules of order. Last, last couple verses. The application of the rules of order. How do we actually put this in place? What, what do we do? Verse 39, Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. You know, in one sense, this is the application section for our passage, 26 to 40. Really, it's more of an application section for the whole chapter, chapter 14. And really, it's actually the application for the last three and a half chapters all the way back to the middle of chapter 11, talking about how do we use our spiritual gifts in the context of the corporate worship. How do we do that well? Notice he gives three commands here, three applications. Number one, desire the edification of the church. It says, therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. We talked about this back in the beginning of chapter 14. Desire earnestly those spiritual gifts. Why? Because you should have a certain spiritual gift, and if you don't get that one, you should just leave. No, you should desire to use the spiritual giftedness that you have and to see everyone use our spiritual giftedness to edify the church. Why prophecy over tongues? Because it edified the church. All of us should desire to grow our own spiritual giftedness in whatever context we have so that the church is edified. So for you, maybe that means just getting better at the spiritual giftedness that you know you have. Maybe it means branching out and trying to serve in different ways. So maybe you have different spiritual giftedness than you thought you had. Maybe it's even for guys and for the ladies trying to pursue learning how to teach and so that you can have a speaking gift in, in a context somewhere. But regardless, you're doing all of it so that the church would be built up. Number two, we need to appreciate the gifts of the church. Appreciate the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to the church. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in gifts. After a whole chapter of ragging on this spiritual gifts of tongues, putting all these rules in place, he says, don't forbid it. Why? Because that's easier. Just to say, you know what, that, that gift is kind of hard to manage, that person's kind of hard to manage, let's just not do that anymore. He says, but that's not okay. Because if it's something that God has given, a spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit has actually given to the church, it's good and it should be used properly. You remember in Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 49 and 50, John the apostle, all the apostles are talking to Jesus, and John says, uh, Jesus, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he doesn't follow along with us. 
He's not part of our group, so we told him he wasn't allowed to do that anymore. What does Jesus say? Does he say, oh, good, I'm glad you stopped him. No, he says, do not hinder him. Why? He who is not against you is for you. Just because someone is doing ministry and serving in a way that's different than you would do it, or is serving in a way that is better than you can do it, doesn't mean that we say, hey, stop it. You don't get to use your gift because it's better than me. No, we're excited for the gifts of the Spirit, especially the ones in the context of the church that are different from yours. Like we talked about, some of us are upfront people, some of us are behind-the-scenes people, some of us are a combination of both. Don't be angry, but rather respect and appreciate the gifts that God has given to other people in the church. And then the last application, verse 40, keep the order of the church. All things must be done properly and in an orderly manner, decently, respectably, with, with dignity, with, with some structure and succession. It's the same idea of, of being orderly, like when we talk about the orders of priests, the order of Melchizedek, the order of Aaron, or even in Luke 1 where it talks about Zechariah according to the order of his division. What's the idea? There's a plan, there's a structure, there's a succession for what goes on. All things in the church must be done properly and in an orderly manner. So what's the application for you and me? It's to remember that, to recognize that, that God has put rules of order in place for the corporate worship service, and it's good because he's the designer. He gets to make those rules. We need to encourage them and to, to uplift them in the church and to appreciate them and to walk by them. One commentary wrapped up by saying, all things must be done for the strengthening of the church, the edifying of the church, and all things must be done in a fitting and orderly way. These two commands complement one another because the church is edified only when everything is done in the right way and in an orderly fashion. Praise the Lord. And remember the, the quote from last week, blessed of an institution is the church when all the members do their duty. When we all use our spiritual gifts, serving one another well in the right way, in the right context, the church is blessed, right? Pray that we'll do that as well. Let's pray. God, thank you for the time we have this morning. Thank you for your word that's clear. Thank you for allowing us to understand how you would have us to function as a local body of believers here. And I pray that all of us would be marked by a spirit of humility, desiring to use our gifts for our own, uh, to our own sacrifice to the benefit and the edification of others in the church. So we thank you for the time. Proud of this in your name. Amen.